it's important that you know you're looking left and right and you're seeing other team members that you know you've got their back and and you've got them and they've got yours and I know it's just that camaraderie that you know, it just you can tell when you walk into a restaurant if everyone that works there gets along together that's a good restaurant if they don't it's just a it's just a shop that's got some food out the back. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. As the Sydney lockdown continued, many restaurants in the nation's capital, Canberra, started feeling the pinch. Reliant on custom on Thursdays to Sundays from those jumping in the car and heading south, the lockdowns started having a huge impact on turnover, even though Canberra itself had no restrictions. Now, after weeks of bad trade, Canberra has joined the big sibling cities in lockdown. What impact is it having? Damien Brabender is the executive chef and owner of Otis Dining and executive chef of the Truffle Farm. Damien, how are you? Very well, mate. How are you going? Good. It's um, Canberra has been a really unique city in Australia with a, a long period of time without any sort of impact um, by the pandemic, but the last sort of month or two has changed. What's, what's it like for you at the moment? Uh, yeah, it has been like we had 13 months. So 13 months without a recorded case in our community here, which was absolutely fantastic considering the proximity of where we are compared to the likes of Sydney. Um, but the other side of that is that as our neighbours get affected, as our neighbours get locked down, that 100% reflects on us as well. We are a tourism destination. So um, it's been it's been heartbreaking to watch so many people in the industry in Sydney and in Melbourne and all around who have been battling with numerous lockdowns and things, which obviously are essential to happen. But watching it kind of from the sidelines and just waiting with that negative anticipation that we know that it's going to be here soon. Um, and now that it has arrived, uh, we're quite lucky that we had time to prepare a bit more time than most did. But the, the financial roll-on effects for the industry is definitely something that, you know, it's, it's much bigger than, than anyone really anticipated it would actually be. Did you notice an impact prior to the current lockdown that's in Canberra? Oh, absolutely. So the truffle farm, for example, uh, we normally see 2,500 to 3,000 people every winter over that three-month period um, who all come down mainly from Sydney. It would be about 80% from Sydney. So we had all of those guests cancelled or had to be refunded. Uh, and then even the restaurant themselves itself, we had numerous large group bookings, um, midweek trade, uh, parliamentary sitting weeks. They all kind of just disappeared. So... Um, we definitely felt it. We could smell the smoke before we could see the fire, if that makes sense. Canberra's dining landscape has changed so dr dramatically over the last five to ten years, and you've been a big part of that. Tell, tell us what makes it uh, so unique and, and special here. Um, I absolutely love Canberra. I know people do like to, to take the piss out of Canberra a bit, but I think in the last five, five to six years, um, Canberra's dining scene has kind of stood up and said, you know, here we are, this is what we're doing. We're not going to just follow trends. We're actually going to start making our own trends as well. You look at some of the fantastic restaurants that we have here, so, you know, Raku Dining, Pilot, Zab. You've got so many um, absolutely incredible little eateries and stories and stuff behind it as well, and they're all so uh, confident and independent. So I just think that Canberra's kind of found its stride and found its voice. They've gotten out of the 
long power lunch uh, syndicate that they were stuck in for quite a while and now become really a, a celebration of good local produce and particularly the amazing wine in the area as well. You're not originally from Canberra. You grew up in regional Victoria. What, what was food like for you growing up? Uh, well, I grew up in a town called Narrawong, which is a town of about 85 people, and I'm one of 12 kids in my immediate family. So um, there was only one corner store in that town before we moved down the road to Portland. But I can tell you now, when you're living in a small country town of that many people and you're related to almost everyone and you're a teenage boy, you find a hobby very quickly, and mine was cooking. So um, the majority of the food growing up was from our own family kitchen at home, So. Is there any feasts from that time that you can um, remember to, and share with us? Oh, every uh, every birthday celebration, um, religious holidays in my family were always uh, quite a big thing as well. It would always be a large family gathering. Um, there's you know so many to to even think back on, but I remember butchering a number of uh, a number of birthday cakes trying to cook for my siblings when I was still learning how to cook. So, um, but they they kind of become the fondest memories of all. Uh, my sister actually has a, a cake making company down in Melbourne and she's making some of the, the best looking cakes in Australia at the moment. And she's very quick to remind me how bad my caking baking ability used to be. So the, the sibling rivalhood is always good. Take us back to the time when uh, you first sort of worked in a commercial kitchen. Uh, what was it like for you? So I started uh, just as a dishwasher, as most people do. Um, in local, uh, the local pub and hotel there called the Richmond Henty Hotel. Um, I absolutely loved it. I just loved the, the whole vibe of hospitality was something that was so, it was so natural uh, to myself. I think and a big part of that comes from my upbringing in a large family as well. But it was something where you kind of, you know, you're working together as a team to achieve a goal, to make sure that everyone is comfortable and happy and satisfied. So for me, it was just a real eye-opener. I, um, I actually wanted to be a maths teacher while growing up, so um, ended up being a chef, so I couldn't have been further away from what I planned. But um, it was just one of them things where, you know, you, you kind of just fall in love with what it is that you're doing and just seeing the systems in kitchens and seeing how quickly, you know, you can serve a couple of hundred people on a weekend. And, um, it was just an incredible eye-opening experience. What were the real key moments that um, changed your path um, when you were young in regards to chefing? Uh, so on the day I actually qualified my apprenticeship, all the students from the, the TAFE that I was attending, uh, we were all uh, invited to do a bit of a celebration dinner where we would talk about the food that we've prepared for our friends and family members. We would invite uh, five or six people each and then we'll be presented with our certificates and the, um, the day that came around for me to actually qualify my apprenticeship, um, I was staying with one of my brothers who lived in the town and he um, unfortunately went for a, uh, a swim, he never came back from uh, a couple of hours before that, that, uh, that dinner so um, we never, I never actually got my certificate because that happened so I left and was with family straight away after that obviously but that was something which made me really question, you know, what is it that we're going to do with our life? Now we've, you know, we live in the luckiest country in the world and we're able to travel and we're able to experience other cultures. And I just thought I didn't want to waste a single day of my life. And I wanted to make sure that I'm immersing myself into things that I love every single day. So that's, was kind of a kick up the ass that, that I needed. Otherwise I'd be uh, probably 
talking at a local podcast about chicken palmies or something. So. <laughs> Which there's nothing wrong with, by the way. <laughs> what sort of impact did did that traumatic event have on you? Did that trigger your move to to Europe and to explore some of the, the best restaurants over there? Yeah, so it was within a month of that happening that I actually um, I jumped online one night, um, got my passport organised. Um, a couple of weeks later, I bought a one-way ticket um, over to Europe, so didn't really have a plan. Um, I'd never lived in a city I never lived in a town bigger than about 8,000 people before, so I was in for a, a shock and a half. There was more people on the bloody tube than there was in my hometown, I can tell you now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, being able to work in the likes, you know, restaurants in Paris and then over in London as well. Um, London was absolutely incredible experience. I got to spend over three years there um, working. You know, I got to work with some incredible chefs, Mikel Rue Jr. at the Galvaroche. I got to work with Jay Shukis, um work with Pierre Kaufman in his restaurant, uh, become head chef of the Royal Families, uh, the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, um, which was an absolute incredible experience. So got to cook for the, the Royal Family and things quite a bit, not name dropping or anything, but me and me and Liz are pretty tired, I guess. But uh, me, and, me and Prince Andrew, probably not so much. But um, it was, you know, you got to work with some of these people that you see on TV, you read their books, you never think you're going to be lucky enough to eat at their restaurant, let alone stand in the kitchen and cook with them. So um, it kind of just snowballed there for me. It's in, in the sense of my passion anyway, where every day will just become not a challenge or a struggle. It just become more of an opportunity to, to try and immerse myself more and more into that culture of hospitality. Can you give us an idea of what sort of food you cooked for the royal family? You you, you also um, catered for the BAFTAs for a couple of years running as well. Um, what sort of food were you cooking at, at that time for these um, these kind of guests? Oh, I can tell you now. The BAFTA awards was uh, I think I lost a few lost a few friends in the kitchen that day when I uh, had to get them to peel about twelve thousand quail eggs over two days. So. Um, it was quite some, some very, uh, very audaciously uh, traditional style canapé dishes and things as well. So it, it's not all caviar and wagyu beef and stuff like that. A lot of the food that we were cooking was just good English style traditional fare um, using you know, pheasant and venison and things like that. But just getting to learn how to respect the food and, and elevating it to a level where you know, you'd be surprised how much even members of the royal family can enjoy, you know, a strudel or something. So most recently we had um, Camilla and Charles come over to Canberra and I gave them a, a bit of a cooking lesson out at the truffle farm. So I've, I've never been as nervous in my life as sitting in a, in a small shed with the wind blowing and about 300 metres uh, members of the media all filming me with a, Kitchen aid and pouring some liquid nitrogen into a into a bowl to make some some ice cream half a meter away from um, a member of the royal family. So it's yeah, it, everyone everyone has the same style of taste buds. I think so. No matter who you're cooking for, as long as you you're putting your heart and soul into it, and you know you making sure you can make it as good as you can. I think that's the main thing. You mentioned you got to work alongside uh, legendary chef Pierre Kaufman. Do you have any stories of of that experience? Uh, yeah, so Pierre, um, he came on board with the Royal Opera House, um, became lead consultant as they changed um, the, the trajectory of the business and how they were doing it. They're going much more towards 
um, heavily traditional European fare and, and style of management as well as the food. Um, and at the same time, um, very luckily for me, he was also in the middle of opening his restaurant, Kaufman's in Berkeley House, which is next to where Marcus Waring was. Um, the staff canteen there would actually share between the two, the two restaurants. So I remember sitting in the staff canteen on one of my first days and I was chatting to a couple of Australian chefs that were working there because every second chef in London seems to be a bloody Aussie. And uh, looking over and just seeing Pierre Kaufman you know, having a cup of tea with Marcus Waring and going, what the hell has happened here? Like, you've got to pinch yourself and go, these are like two of the most legendary chefs in the world at the moment. So it's, yeah, you just become very, very grateful to be around, you know, that, that level of experience and make sure that you can learn as much as you possibly can. What did you take from your time in the UK? Um, I learned that, you know, in hospitality, and it probably sounds a bit corny, but even though I'd moved so far away from my family at a time where normally most people, most normal people, would rather be around their family, and I did the exact opposite thing as, as a massive gamble and risk. But um, I learned that when you're working in hospitality, it's you're working with family and you're making lifelong friends as well. One of the guys that I met over in London still works with me now, and that's uh, Adam Wilson. He's the head chef of Otis Dining Hall, and he's worked with me at Walgan Valley and at a couple other restaurants in Canberra when I first arrived, plus he's been head chef of Otis since uh, the day we opened. So you, you kind of forge these relationships that even though we hear so much about how hard it is to keep good staff in this industry and to keep them motivated and, and nurtured, um, you just have some absolute bloody diamonds out there that, you know, they are the heart and soul of the, of the industry. So it's one thing that I've really learnt there is that, yeah, you, you really are working with, with your best mates and, and they become your family as well. What is it about the connection and the cooking together with Adam Wilson that you have that you think works so well? Um, there's just no... Um, there's just no bullshit. Like, oh, I don't know if I should swear or not, sorry, but there's just no, um, you know, there's none of that arrogance or anything. It's if I do something and it's stupid, he'll go, what are you doing? You dickhead. Like, uh, he'll just he'll pull me up and vice versa as well. But it's never in a way of judgment. It's always in a way of, you know, no, let's, let's do it this way. And, you know, you, if you've got two people who can steer a ship together, I mean, you, you're going to be able to sail through the day and night. So, it's it's really important to have that trust in people as well and being able to have people that, that aren't working for you, they're working with you. And it's important that, you know, you're looking left and right and you're seeing other team members that, you know, you've got their back and, and you've got them and they've got yours. And I know it's just that camaraderie that, yeah, you know, it just, you can tell when you walk into a restaurant, if everyone that works there gets along together, that's a good restaurant. If they don't, it's just a, it's just a shop that's got some food out the back, so... What what brought you back to Australia? Uh, I don't know if I should say it out loud, but uh, I, I overstayed my visa by more than 12 months and um, <laughs> the people I was working for at the time weren't very impressed by that. So um, I kind of had to come back for visa reasons and then like so many people when you're overseas, you come back home to renew your visa or whatever and you kind of go, that's right, we live in the, we live in the best country in the world right here. So I thought, well, I'm back here, I may as well stay here and start working towards the um, the dream of opening my own restaurant. Plus, on top of that, I was just offered a job to, to work on Lizard Island on a tropical island in the Great Barrier Reef. So I wasn't really in a hurry to get back to uh, 
It's a grey, drab, cold London that time of the year. Well, tell us about working on the Great Barrier Reef uh, on, a, on Lizard Island. What was that experience like? Uh, an incredible experience. I mean, the, the nature there is absolutely incredible, um, as you can imagine. But the, the resort lifestyle for chefs, um, it's, I mean, it's full on because you're, you're living where you're working. But for me, that's always been the case. Um, but you also get more time to really put into the food and you have to be you have to be pretty switched on you can't just duck on down to the shop and grab something if you don't have it you get a delivery every two weeks um you know the guys at water sports are catching the fish daily and bringing it into the kitchen so you know it's just you know i've never eaten so much coral trout in my life and probably never will get to again but um it's just amazing you just remember how rich we are as a country when it comes to great produce particularly tropical fish Uh, it's absolutely incredible you made a move to Emirates Walgan Valley, uh, a renowned and very uh, luxurious resort. What was it like working there? And is there any special events that you can tell us about? Yeah, so taking the role um, as executive chef at Walgan Valley was uh, well was a game changer for me. It was extraordinary. I was still oh, obviously a bit younger than I am now, so it's about seven, seven, eight years ago. Um, but at that stage, a little bit of arrogance might have crept in, and I'll be very honest about that. But I, um, I was very, very quickly put, brought under the wing of the general manager there, uh, Joost Haymeyer, who's um, absolutely incredible hotelier or innkeeper, as he calls himself, but um, just really brought everything back down to earth and made it simple for me and just went, mate, you've got two choices here. You know, you remember all the things you've learned from the chefs you've got to work with throughout your life or you can be a dickhead and stop learning. And I've gone, well, I don't want to be a dickhead. So, uh, well, that's, that's probably out for debate still. But um, we also got to do some incredible um, collaboration dinners as well. I got to, you know, find myself standing in the kitchen next to uh, Neil Perry and Brett Graham and the three of us sitting down at a table discussing menus. And I'm just like, holy shit, what's happened here? Like... You know, you've got Brett Graham at the time, I think Ledbury was number eight restaurant in the world or something. And Neil Perry, who, yeah, his, his name in Australia obviously means chef. So um, it was absolutely incredible. And then after that, um, even blessed again by, by um, the presence of uh, Antonio Coluccio um, before he uh, sadly passed on. But he came over and we did a three-day event, um, him and I together, um, cooking with truffles and um, did a gourmet traveler reader events and things as well um, was absolutely yeah just eye-opening and you see the the more experienced the chefs are that I've got to work with the clearer it became that you kind of go full circle you get back to the that simple stuff that you started cooking when you're a kid it was um yeah just incredible experiences to be able to to learn from something that we can't we can't kind of just create ourselves and that's time and experience i mean how many people would like to go back in time and do things over again with their experiences and we're given that opportunity in this industry by you know standing on the shoulders of giants and learning from what they're passing down to us all the time a few years ago now you opened otis dining hall in canberra but why did you choose Canberra and um, and create this restaurant here? So, with with choosing Canberra, 
I didn't actually ever plan to open a restaurant in Canberra. I never planned to live in Canberra. Um, and that was literally because my eyes were always focused on Sydney. Um, and that's where I was going to be opening a restaurant. But I came to Canberra and I absolutely fell in love with the place. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And again, I know people take the piss out of it because we've got roundabouts coming out our ass and, and politicians falling out of pubs at two in the morning. But we've got so much culture here. We've got a real sense of community. And that's something that you see even looking through social media and looking at all the restaurants and bars. And you've got all these hospitality legends that are just like tagging each other and shouting out to each other about, hey, guys, go to Bob's restaurant because Bob's a top bloke. And, and I just, I loved that. I thought, this is what you want to be a part of. Like, you don't want to be jumping in the ring and, and fighting against your own industry. You you kind of just, you know, it's got to be a team sport. You've won Chef of the Year, um, many awards and hats as well for Otis Dining Hall. And tell us about the restaurant and, and how you created it and what you're doing there. So the restaurant itself is, and this is going to sound a bit a bit weird, but I sat down and I was thinking, I want to open this restaurant and this is how I want it to be. And I drew up all these plans and come up with a dozen different names and a few different menus. And I looked at it and then put it in a cupboard, left it for two days, came back to it, opened it up and I just went, you're a dickhead, these are the shittest ideas you've ever come up with. And I was just going, what the, like, what the was I thinking here so I thought I'll take 10 steps back and I'll just create what I thought when I was a kid would be the coolest restaurant in the world and that was that whole Sinatra-esque style um, Chicago steakhouse vibe type of feel which is what we have now at Otis as well it was kind of get your head out of the mindset of being a chef for a minute and remember what it's like to be the customer remember what it's like to to read about a restaurant and go, I want to go there, instead of reading it and going, that sounds like every other restaurant I've been to. And that's something that was really, really important to me, that we focused on that. And I feel like we've actually achieved that. Um, and it's only been improved from my ideas, probably tenfold, and that's by the hard work of, of the legends that are, that are working there as part of the team as well. So it's just been this organically growing, ups and downs, obviously, but... Yeah, we're just sticking on track to being Sinatra cool, you know. You mentioned that uh, your experiences with the likes of Neil Perry and Brett Graham um, taught you about restraint as you get older as a chef on the plate. Um, tell us about the food at Otis. Do you have a dish or two that you can tell us about that sort of exemplifies what you're doing there? Yeah, so there were the signature dish, or the two signature dishes of the restaurant ones, is steak au poivre, which is a pepper steak. But, you know, we, we've, we've, removed, we've removed the, the um, I guess, the arrogance around the name of the dish. We've brought it back to good old Aussie um, terminology, pepper steak. Um, but we're still cooking it in that same way that, that I was cooking over in Europe with, with Adam Wilson in the same kitchen as well. And, and when I was talking to him about the restaurant and opening it, and that's one thing we went, yeah, it's, it's a steak on a plate, but it's the best steak and it's cooked the best way, and it's got the best sauce, and that's all you need to do. Everything else can have its own plate. Everything else can have its own stage to shine on. We don't need to, we don't need to get an engineering degree to put a bloody meal together. You know what I mean? So, I think just focusing on, on putting that one perfectly done thing on the plate, you can't go wrong with that. But then again, there's also nothing to hide behind as well. 
the creme caramel that we do with the um, the Olsen smoked sea salt with a hibiki whiskey as well. Again, it's a creme caramel. A lot of people might look at that and go, is that lazy? Well, I'll challenge people to make a, to make a better creme caramel, to be honest. I mean, when you're making 10,000 of them, um, you know, they, they stand the test of time and who are we to, to change it? We try and elevate things a little bit by adding our special touch to it, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna deconstruct it. We're not gonna give people IKEA catalogs instead of menus. With the strong uh, kitchen brigade that you have with yourself and Adam and, and the other team, how do you um, create the atmosphere in the front of house and build a team there to, to deliver the um, promise that you do at Otis? So with the front of house team, we're extremely fortunate to have James Barker, who a uh, um, young fella who seriously just has the, the passion and wine knowledge of, of anyone I've ever met before. Um, so hands-on um it's just so passionate and, and so product driven as well um he's literally he's i don't know if he's got stakes in every vineyard that he talks about but he, like, he talks about them like they're his own family business and and that's exactly the same way the chefs talk about the food so with james out there and elevating the the staff with one-on-one training as well um you'll see him half the time kicking me out of the dining room because i'm just walking around and talking shit to customers as well, but, um, which does not help his sequence of service out, I can tell you now, but gets, gets me a couple of glasses of wine every night, so that's fine. But um, it's just that passion. And, and again, looking at the industry, when I first started sort of you know, nearly 20 years ago now, you, you'd never see chefs taking their hats off to the front of house guys and going, shit, these guys, they've got it. Like these guys are as passionate as we are. It always used to sort of be this silent competition that, you know, the chefs are hard asses and they're working more hours and they're doing this and they're doing that. I can tell you now, the front of house guys we've got now led by James Barker are just, yeah, it's one team, one dream. And that's the same thing. He's He was just saying to me last night how important it is that he drills into the staff in a really positive and reassuring way that if a customer says something's good, you go and tell the chefs because otherwise they're only going to hear when something isn't good. And I thought that's just the perfect way of, of really showing respect internally as well. With such a strong team that you've built to rely on, what sort of impact has that had on, on your role with the business? Has that changed over the years? Yeah, my role's changed dramatically. Um, I've actually had, I've had two knee surgeries since we opened. Um, 2017 was the week before I was lucky enough to to have the AHA Chef of the Year Award for Australia, which was very unexpected. But I, um, I actually received that in a full leg brace. So um, I, I was out of action for about seven months. And then but when I was back into action, I was out at the truffle farm because it was winter and then back into the restaurant almost only half the time in the kitchen compared to normal and then learning how to use Excel uh, spreadsheets and all that really fun bullshit. But um, for me, it was kind of a blessing as well because it meant that me stepping aside from that hands-on in the kitchen every day it, it gave room for for adam for example to spread his wings and go radio this is my kitchen now this is how we're going to do it and he's just done it in such a way that i go in there now and i'm the bloody sous chef which i've got no piles with as well so. canberra is in a it's in a regional area, even though it's a, a relatively large uh, city. But what are the producers like in this area that you connect with? Do you have any that you can tell us about that um, that you like to celebrate on the menu? 
Uh, there's an exceptional number of uh, producers in the area that are absolutely incredible. Um, we draw produce from New South Wales as a whole as well. Obviously, my time with Welburn Valley in the Blue Mountains, I was lucky enough to get to meet so many producers and be hands-on with them as well. Um, so we still draw from there as well. Even up around Orange, like Mandadgery Creek, their venison, um, whenever we can get our hands on that, we've got that on the menu. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, the truffle farm, obviously, I'm working there as well, but to have truffles right here on our doorstep is something pretty spectacular. And just the way that, you know, I've got chefs I used to work with in Paris and in London who would ring me up going, how are you, how are you using so much truffles? And I'm just like, well, mate, we've got them right here, so why wouldn't we? Um, it's just, you know, we, we are spoiled for choice, small goods as well. I mean, Pialago Estate, they're doing some fantastic things as well, but the wine, I think, is is something that we really should all be taking um, a great a great bucket load of pride in and really getting behind, particularly those who have lost a whole year's worth of supply due to smoke taint and things like that. But, you know, the likes of Conakilla, for example, Collector, just like Lark Hill, just brilliant local producers. And they're, they're, just, they're just so bloody friendly and accommodating. Like you ring them up and go, yeah, we want this, this and this. And they go, yeah, no worries, I'll bring it down myself tomorrow. And you go, you don't get that in other places. So I think it isn't just about the produce. It's about the availability and the accessibility that you can talk directly to the, the grower. You can talk directly to the winemaker. Um, we're very spoiled like that. They used to say that Canberra was a good restaurant market when Parliament was sitting. Is that still the case or has it matured quite a lot? Um, well, I think we would definitely have the most political restaurant in Canberra now. So um, <laughs> we've been on a Netflix TV series as, a, as the political restaurant on the Secret City TV series that's on as well. And obviously there was a whole, uh, well, there's a whole, political group named after the restaurants so I don't know any restaurants that have their had their menus uh, read out in question time three or four days in a row so um, I mean it is it's a part of the fabric of society here and it really is part of that culture people know that you know sitting weeks are going to be busier um, we're lucky because our part of the market it's not the walk-in trade people are pre-booking a week two weeks three weeks in advance but I can tell you now that I can look across the road into Green Square and I can see, you know, Caribou or, or the Durham, for example, and you can go, there's an awful lot of bloody suits over there that weren't there last week. I reckon it's sitting weeks about to start. So um, it's definitely a big part of, of hospitality. And, and for those who do depend on it in their businesses, um, it's just, it can be devastating when, when Parliament gets told they're not sitting, for example. So... We are, we are the capital city. We're in the political triangle, so it's always going to be a big part of what it is that we do. What do you love about what you do? I just love sharing experiences, and not just with customers, but with the, with the team, with the staff. Um, I'm never going to stop learning in this industry because it keeps growing and it grows, it grows faster than grows faster than bloody YouTube almost, you know what I mean? So every time you, you see another new restaurant open and you see different ideas and, and everyone's so connected because we're, we're using the same produce, we're using the same ingredients, but we're all coming up with things that are so different to each other. Um, I think that's just something that's, that's really special as well. And, and you know, it's, it's a challenge, 
yes, definitely. Um, but it's rewarding, and it's rewarding in a way that you can't put on a on an Excel spreadsheet or on a table or something. It's rewarding in a way that it's so interpersonal that you can grow from it, and then you can pass that on to the next person as well. Um, for me, it's it's quite amazing to think that maybe one day someone will be talking to somebody else about something and say, yeah, I used to work with, with Damien in that restaurant and I learned these things from him. And you go, that's just so incredible the way that things change as generations change as well. At the moment, you're coping with a lockdown and doing a, a takeaway cook at home sort of option. How do you feel about what's happening in Canberra at the moment, given the lockdowns in major cities as well in Australia? I think Canberra is extremely resilient, extremely understanding um, and extremely respectful to one another. And that's one thing that that people really should be focusing on and looking at is how respectful people in Canberra are to one another during these lockdowns. Um, We're not seeing stupid protests and things and, and everyone's free to have their own voice and opinion on those things. I'm not a political uh, commentator or anything, but um, people in Canberra, they're not going to go out and be dickheads because they know that, that you can't have a tantrum without getting sent to your room. Like, well, the way we're looking at it is going, rightio, we need to go home and we need to self-isolate, we need to do this and that, we need to go and get a jab, we need to get a test, then we'll just do it. And people, you know, I went down to Epic two days in a row. The first day I waited 14 hours before being turned away. But, you know, you say thank you to the person who said, unfortunately, we can't get you in. It's not their fault. And there's there's no no animosity or anything like that. You don't see fights in the supermarket over toilet paper like you do on the TV. Um, I think that we're just... I think we're, do, we're dealing with it in Canberra with maturity and with common sense. And that's why we had 13 months without cases. And that's why once we hit our vaccination rates that we will be opened up again. And I think we'll hit the ground running. And, you know, it's going to be first in best dressed. And, you know, it is a race. And I think that Canberra is definitely, you know, poised to, to win that race. And the prize there is going to be a bit of normality again, which is going to be brilliant. Has there been positives to come out of this experience for you and and for the industry, do you think? Absolutely. I think that um, so many many people within the industry have been tested, um, but with with that test and with that great pressure, you're always going to have those that kind of rise above it. And and I hate the word pivot. It makes it sound like we're all fucking playing netball or something, but um, people, they, they are finding different ways around it and they are connecting with their their guests in a way that that you normally never get to do. Um, we've, we've just served 220 people called home packs over two services this week, and that's just incredible. These are people that are they're coming in, and it's almost like an emotional experience for them. They're so grateful that people are still trying to ensure that that connection is still there. Um, the one thing you don't want to do is after having to close to, to totally, you know, board up the walls, board up the doors and windows, and then when you when you open up again, there's no one there. So it's important to have that, that connection. There are so many junior members of teams that I know of in Canberra who have absolutely just stood up and gone, rightio, we're doing something different. Let's let's grab it by the horns and, and just thrash the fuck out of it. And that's what they're doing. You see so many who have just kind of gone all arrogance aside. Normally we do fine dining. Who cares? We'll do 
we'll do chicken sandwiches, we'll do burgers. We're just going to make sure people are eating because the customers are going to be hungry and they're going to be coming back in. But, you know, our job's to feed them. When things open up again and we move beyond COVID, what, what's what's next for you? Do you have anything, any plans? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I've got a, a restaurant that I'm looking at uh, that's perhaps opening, depending how how a few other plans go, but I can't talk too much about that one just yet because um, I'll probably jinx myself and end up shooting myself in the foot or something. Um, but uh, Adam Wilson, the head chef, and I, we um, actually own the Canberra Bagel Company, which has um, been on hold for since the start of COVID now, but we're looking at um, rolling that, that silver bullet van back out and um, getting a bricks and mortar set up. So imagine bagels, but in the way of Subway and all the all the ingredients and smears are all hand chef made stuff and local produce where you can just get a kick-ass good breakfast um, or brunch or whatever um, and know that what you're getting has come out of a, a proper good award-winning kitchen and not just out of packets and things. There's a bit of a hole in the breakfast market, we like to say. Shit jokes, shit jokes. <laughs> Well, Damien, I would love to having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. I know you've got many more of them. Perhaps we can catch up again later in the year. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Absolutely, mate. It's great to hear from you and uh, no doubt we'll see you again soon. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.